How we doing? Good morning. From the west side. I am from the west side. I grew up in this very neighborhood. Where do we normally put this? Here? Sounds good. Sean doesn't drink water. I need lots of water. I'll be right here. Sean, am I good here? Yeah. So my name's Josh. I grew up in the 85345. Anybody from the 85345 legitimate? Hey. It's the best place ever to be raised, but I have betrayed the west side. I'm now on the east side. So my story, uh, we didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents were great parents, great spouses until they divorced, and uh, they're both in the room right now, and they get along um, and all that. But the pure being here is just weird to me because every memory I have up until 18 happened right here. Good, bad, whatever. My worst memory as a wee little one happened in this vicinity here. This used to be more of like a parks and rec place. There used to be like a log cabin right over here where kids kind of did their summer camps and stuff. And I was at a summer camp one time where they took the wee little ones swimming at Peoria High School's pool. And all kids, you know what they do in the pool. They go pee in the pool. I took it a step further and did something else in the pool. And didn't tell anyone. But they could smell it. So they brought us back to this log cabin that used to be right here, and they lined us up alphabetical order. My last name is Watt, so I was at the end. Adams, Bailey, and they were sniffing our butts to see who the culprit was. And they got to Watt, they sniffed my rear end, this is the kid that pooped in the pool. And that's my mom laughing because she had to come pick me up and take care of this mess that is her son. Now I get to preach here. And I said, and hopefully build a better memory than the one I currently have. I get my parents here, my stepdad here, and since I was 18, the 15 years or so, the Lord has done amazing things. He's saved our family. He's restored our family. I never would have stepped foot on a stage. The only time I ever spoke in public in high school, at Peoria High School, I was running for senior class vice president, and nobody ran against me for whatever reason. And I stood up and said, look at the ballot. I'm the only option. And I walked off the stage. And I was a senior class vice president. And now I'm a preacher. And I love to preach and I love to teach. And the nerves are mostly gone. I love the Lord. And I get to teach now, as uh, you guys have seen, out of the book of Psalms. So Psalms is an interesting book. It is the most random book in the Bible. It follows no real kind of logical order if you just go page to page to page. One day it's the greatest joy in the world. The next day you open it up in the very next chapter and it's the deepest, most hurtful sorrow you've ever felt and I get one of those passages out of Psalm 13 so how many guys are basketball fans going to watch the game tonight (laughs) Cleveland raise your hand a few of you Golden State raise your hand yes so my wife loves sports she has no kind of background knowledge she just sits down on the couch with me and watches whatever sport I want to watch and she wants to watch and she roots for a team she picks a team and goes for it she was rooting for Golden State I said why are you going for Golden State I don't know I like them they just seem nice That's a terrible reason to vote for a sport. (laughs) So I got on Netflix, and there's a Netflix documentary, Believe Land. It's about Cleveland. How many of you guys have seen this? So good. It's about the heartache that is being a Cleveland sports fan. They never win anything. Not only do they not win, they lose in terrible ways. The Browns have, like, lost on a fumble on the goal line in in a championship game multiple times. LeBron left his hometown and won two titles elsewhere. It's a terrible place to be a sports fan. And the documentary just tracks the life of normal Cleveland people and just what heartache they live in. 
in Psalms is going to get to that. Because here's the reality of life. If you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with your surroundings, if you're honest with the news, if you're honest with your marriage, if you're honest with what you see when you open your eyes in this world, this world is painful. And it hurts. And it's sad. And here's your kind of options. We, we, we kind of have two groups of people. We got the feelings people who just kind of live into that feeling and just have a hard time getting out of the muck and mire of this world. And then we've got the truth people, the Sean Myers of the world, who is going to tell you what is true, whether you want to hear it or not. And Psalm speaks to both. Specifically, we're going to look at this Psalm 13 about lamenting. And it speaks to the feelings people who just want to, woe is me. I work primarily with teenagers. And it is a woe is me crowd. This whole thing of cutting is real to some of you maybe in this room and real to lots of the kids I work with. I just don't get it. But I see it all the time because there is a reality that we live in a broken world. People trying to make sense of the brokenness, they just kind of camp out in their feelings. Or you got the truth people who kind of disregard the feelings. Get, get, Get over it and get to the truth. God is sovereign. God is good. Who cares if you have tears? I see this with, I have three boys, three awesome boys, studly. And I am so quick to squash their emotions because I want tough boys. I want boys that look like they were raised in 85345, not out in Chandler where I now live. I want some men. Stop crying. We're tough. Both of those camps need Psalm 13. Both of those camps need to lament a little. So Psalm 13, and we have a graphic here. I believe you guys have seen this before, but this is, this is weird not have one right here. This is from a, just a software program. Those are all the Psalms, and those are the breakdown of all the Psalms. Royal, wisdom, thanksgiving, hymn, trust, praise. Blue is lament. It's the biggest, the most robust section of Psalms, which means... There's something to the feelings we feel in this world, but there's also some truth that needs to be combined with those feelings. God gives us words in the Psalms of lament. Psalm 13 isn't the only Psalm of lament, but it's the one we're going to cover. And I pray that as we leave here, we have a, a theology, an understanding of God, specifically of prayer, that is more robust in the truth and more compassionate in the feelings that we all feel. Does that sound like a good way to walk out of here? I think so, on this wonderful Father's Day. So here's my big idea. Lament is simply this. It's God's precious gift to his children in this broken world. What if the lament sections weren't in this book? We would be left to ourselves figuring out how to deal with the brokenness. The feelings people would be saying, they're right, and all you do is just cry and cut yourself and live in the despair of this world. The truth people would be smashing them with John Calvin books. We wouldn't know what to do. Lament is here. It covers both. It takes into all into consideration. Feelings and truth. It's a wonderful book. And Psalm 13 is a great one to preach because it's short and sweet and gets to the point. There's six verses here. I'm going to cover them two at a time. Here's what we're going to cover. The first thing is lament is recognition of the brokenness of the world. That's what we'll cover first. Secondly, we'll look at lament is also a reminder on our dependence on God to fix the brokenness of the world. And then finally, lament is a primer for praise in our life. 
Lament recognizes the brokenness. It recognizes I can't fix it. I need God. And finally, it's a primer. Primer on that little engine gets it ready to rev up for praising God. So that's what we're doing. The first one is lament is a recognition of the brokenness of the world. So go to Psalm 13. How much does Sean move around? I imagine he like, does he run around and run up the steps? (laughs) Should I do that? Psalm 13, first two verses here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Truth, people, notice where it starts. It doesn't start with periods and exclamation points and theological truths. David starts in the unknown, in the questions, in the feelings, in the emotions. He has five questions there. God, why? Why? How long? How long? How long? You guys just did that corporately. How long? How long? How long? Truth is good and right, but it doesn't always have to be the starting point of people's relationship with God. We see it here with David. Why? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I take counsel within myself? This is lament. It starts with the recognition that this world is not as it should be. Now, the question might be for some of you, what about David's life is so messed up right now? And there's no, nothing in this psalm, nothing necessarily in the whole book of Psalms that tells us exactly what he's dealing with. But I'll just give you a quick rundown of David's life. Let me take a little drink here. There's two kind of sections of Scripture, Old Testament, that cover David's life. The book of Chronicles, there's two volumes. And the book of Samuel, there's two volumes also. Chronicles is more the brighter side of David. It kind of overlooks all the bad stuff. It's kind of more political, geared towards Jewish kind of... trying to make him something of a king in Jews' eyes. Samuel is raw footage. It's TMZ footage of what David was actually like. That's the Jewish king we all kind of hope for. It's it's not telling lies. It's just looking at it from a different angle. First and second Samuel is, that's David. That's the David I grew up with. That kid's from 85345. I know that boy. And here's what first and second Samuel. First, First Samuel is 31 chapters. David comes along chapter 16. First two chapters are pretty good. He's just this shepherd boy, and then you know what happens. He comes in, and he bursts on the scene with David and Goliath. It's the best story to tell little boys if you have them. He kills Goliath. He's amazing. He's, a, he's an icon now. Quickly thereafter, Saul gets jealous, and for the last 13 chapters of that book, he is on the run, running for his life because Saul is trying to kill him. David and Goliath followed by mostly on the run, hiding out because this man wants to kill him. That's who's writing this. Okay, go to 2 Samuel. Hopefully it gets better. 2 Samuel, the very first chapter, his best friend Jonathan dies. David and Goliath on the run. His best friend dies. Third chapter, his close ally is murdered. 11th chapter, he commits adultery and murder on the man that he stole the wife from. If you're not a Bible person, you didn't grow up in church, I didn't grow up in church, this might all be, you know David and Goliath, but you don't know the whole story. The whole story's sad. He loses this child that he has with this woman who he committed adultery with. He lost a child. That's reason to lament. In the 13th chapter, his daughter is raped by his son. 
15th chapter, his son conspires against him to kill him. 18th chapter, that same son is then killed and David mourns because he's still his son. You guys have had kids turn on you. You still don't want them to have harm in their life. 20th chapter, there's another rebellion. At the very end of 2 Samuel, David screws up. It says something happened in his heart. He wanted more credit, I guess. And he takes the census, counts his people. God says, I told you not to do that. I was the one building Israel, not you. You pick your punishment. I'll give you three options. David says, I'm tired of being on the run. Let it fall on my people. And a pestilence, disease breaks out on his people and thousands are killed. (laughs) This world's broken. And David recognizes it. He knows he's part of the problem and the world just is naturally broken even if he's not in it. And he says, how long, O Lord? Where at in that story is this lament? I don't know. It could happen just about after every chapter of David's life. How long, O Lord? Now, I love... One of my kind of spiritual gifts, whatever, is evangelism, talking with non-believers. And there's not a person in the world who says, this world is as it should be. Everyone, if you're in this room and you don't believe in Jesus, you think this is a big hoax, you think Myers is just scheming for money, whatever it is you think about us pastors and churches, you can't walk out of here and say, this world is as it should be. You say, there's something wrong with this world. I can't put my finger on it, but there shouldn't be murders. Orlando shouldn't have happened. ISIS shouldn't be around. There shouldn't be so much homelessness. Christianity, more than any other religion, paints a true, real picture of what's really going on. And here's what we get in Genesis 3. We get the origin of the problem, and we get the breadth and the depth of the problem of this brokenness. So David experienced it in his own life. But the reality is Genesis, Christianity exclusively tells you what's wrong with the world. And here's what happened in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God gives them everything. Says, just, just, just don't eat of that one right there. You, if you've been in the Bible at all, you know, a snake comes along, tricks them, says, oh, did God really say that? You know what? I don't know. Maybe. And they eat it. And everything's broken. And Genesis 3, 14 through 19 walks through the extent of the brokenness. There's one part of the brokenness of the world that it doesn't cover. You have to pick it up in other parts of the Old Testament. But that's that before that happened, there was God. And Sean talked about this last week. There's an angelic realm that rebelled also against God. And now there's angels and demons. And there's true demonic activity. And there's truly a Satan who is affecting this world. And it started in Genesis 3, and it continues to this point right now. It's broken. Our lament should be big enough to cover the fact that there is spiritual stuff going on. I love speaking with Muslims. I have a lot of Muslim friends. And we had a guy teach at our church four years ago. And he's like an expert on Muslims and dealing with them. And he said, you want to know how you get a Muslim converted to Christianity? I leaned in, please tell me. He says, you don't. You can't do it. You pray. Because there are forces at play that have blinded the eyes of the people of today. And you lament because there is a spiritual realm that isn't all good. You lament and you're sad and you're broken. I live in the East Valley now. The LDS church is crazy out there 
growing up here in the A5345, the only Mormon place I knew was over on 83rd and Cactus. There's a baseball field over there. That's the one I remember. And I had some, a few Mormon friends. One of my neighbors was Mormon. But other than that, I was like, I, I kind of know Mormons. In East Valley, I don't have that. Everyone is Mormon. Every neighbor we have is Mormon. Every garbage man who comes to our house, every delivery guy, every Jehovah's Witness turns out to be Mormon in the end. Everyone <laughs> is Mormon. Like, what? And is this just a logical thing? Just two Americans have logically sought out, okay, what's the truth in this world? And the Christian man has logically came to his conclusion that the Bible's right. And the Mormon guy has logically come to his conclusion that LDS and Mormonism is right. No, there's a spiritual realm that has blinded the eyes. And by God's grace, Christians like myself have been unblinded. The Mormons remain blinded. It is a spiritual battle going on, and you lament. Sad. You don't stay there forever, but you've got to face the reality of the brokenness of the world. Man and God was also broken. In the garden is the first time man and woman sought refuge apart from God. And everyone after that has done the same thing. None of us are born Christian. We're all born hiding. We call it different things, whether it's Mormonism or secular humanism, or I'm just really smart. Whatever it is, we're hiding. And the only way Adam and Eve got restored is God had to seek them out himself and walk towards them and sacrifice an animal who didn't deserve to die and take the skin from that animal and cover them and restore them back to a relationship, covering their nakedness, their shame, their guilt. That's the gospel. But the gospel starts with brokenness and separation between man and God as well. The other brokenness we see in this world, man and himself. People overlook this a lot, but Adam and Eve were good. And then they messed up. And then they were both ashamed and aware of their nakedness. Like, think of all the insecurities you deal with. Is that going to happen in heaven? Think of all the self-doubt and the self-talk that goes into your head that is not good and true and right and uplifting. That's the brokenness of the world. You lament I lament all my teenagers and just the depth of insecurity they deal with. That's brokenness. You recognize it for what it is. Man and others. This is the easiest one. God walked up, said, who did this? Eve said, he did. She did. He, 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 he. This is marriage 101. We blame each other. This is my sons. Three times yesterday, my oldest son walked in crying. What is wrong with you? Roman punched me in the nose. That is a regular occurrence in every household across town. It doesn't stop. There doesn't become a point where a 16-year-old figures out, I should get along with everyone now. They just decide punching in the nose probably isn't the best way, so they figure out other ways to get what they want and manipulate and do what they're going to do regardless of God's will in their life. Man and man are broken. It's as drastic as what we saw in Orlando. As tiny and small as just a little bickering argument you and your wife had on your way in. Brokenness. You lament. And then man in creation. This is the one that if you were to snap your fingers right now and make sure everyone in the whole world got along perfectly and loved perfectly, this world would still be sad. Because I just got a text right before I came on stage. A guy I work with at the church, his father died. 
I'm doing a funeral on Saturday for a dear friend who just lost their battle with cancer. There's still going to be earthquakes. There's still going to be tornadoes. There's still going to be fill in the blank. This world is broken from the angelic realm, demonic realm, all the way down to the earth itself. It's broken. And lament is just our way to say, God, this, this, is, this is not right. This, this is not the way you want it. And it's good to recognize that thing. It gets you into the true story of the world that this is not what it should be. There's a better day coming, but currently we live in the interplay of the brokenness and the restoration that's at play. So lament is our way of speaking to God about the brokenness of this world. Just, just one thing that was encouraging me, God is a good enough father to let us express our feelings honestly. Some of you guys grew up with dads like me who just want to squash your feelings. That's not the God we serve in the Bible. He says, express them. David, tell me how you feel. You've messed up a ton, but I, I want to hear what you think of this world. How long? Keep talking. What else you got? Why, God? Keep talking. Feelings, emotions are good. But David does not stop on his feelings. Let's go to verse 3 here. He makes a pivot here. He says, now consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I have... my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here's the second thing I saw as I studied through this. Lament is a reminder of our dependence on God to fix the brokenness of this world. It's not just, woe is me, woe is this world, woe is Orlando, woe is everything going on with what we can see right now. It's also, woe is everything. And then David turns and says, we need a solution that's bigger than me. Here's the thing you don't see, David. David doesn't say, I'm going to start a campaign I'm going to make America great again. I can fix this. He doesn't go to the younger generation and say, you guys can fix this. The solution relies right here. I know we can, if we just gathered our resources, gathered our energies, gathered our passions, and buckled down and said, let's fix this, we could fix this. He says, God, we need you. This is beyond us. Now, am I saying, don't have any causes? Absolutely not. Foster care and adoption is a big thing here at Redemption. So we want as many people to foster and adopt as possible. But we also want the whole church saying, God, 16,000 foster kids in the system. You've got to intervene and you've got to fix this because we could do our very best, but we need you to come down and fix this. This is why the Lord's prayer is this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you're amazing. Now take your amazingness, take what it's like in heaven and bring it down here because we are messing it up. You recognize that God alone can fix all things. And just so you know, David was no slouch. This wasn't Judas speaking. Jesus is called the son of David. David is the great, 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 great grandfather of God. And he's out of resources to fix the problem. He's no slouch. He is the anointed king. A promise on an eternal kingdom rests on this guy's head. Through you, David, there will be a kingdom that will never end. He's no slouch. 
He's not pathetic. He's not weak. He's not puny. He is the man. The best years of Israel's day in the Old Testament happened because of David's leadership. They finally had land. They had a king. Now, it wasn't perfect. They had a temple. They had God's presence. They had protection from their enemies. The best time of the Old Testament happened under this guy's leadership. And he still is in this cave alone journaling. God, fix this. Americans don't like that. We can't fix this. I can't fix this. David couldn't fix it. Verse 3, I just want to show you something and make a note of David. Verse 3 says this, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So redemption, we get together to talk about what we're preaching. So I got together with the guys to talk about this. And one of the pastors from Tempe said, this reminds me of people dealing with depression and mental issues. I said, huh, that's interesting. It's like they're there, but they're not really there. There's like a deadness to them. And that's kind of how David is describing himself. My eyes have lost their light. So those of you in the room dealing with whatever sort of mental issues, depression, this might describe you. My eyes work, but they don't work. My feelings work, but they don't work. Now that that might not be that astounding, but what's astounding to me is David is the worship leader of the Bible. He wrote the Psalms of the Bible primarily. He's the guy leading you in worship into joy in the presence of God. And it looks like he's depressed. Our resources run out. We cannot fix the problem. We need God to intervene. More than that, verse 4 says, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Not only is David the, the worship leader of the Bible, he is the anointed warrior of the Bible, second only to Jesus. He's the guy who took down Goliath. Took out the Philistines. He is the, the best worship guy they have. This is how my guy worships at Gateway. Maybe not your guy. And he is the warrior who can take out anyone. And he says, my enemies are going to get me. Just a reminder. None of us are that good. None of us can fix our problems as much as we think we can. No presidential candidate, no parenting method, no book you're reading on whatever issue you're going through can ultimately fix you. God has to come down, and his will in heaven has to become true here on earth. Now, that's sad and good news at the same time. That's what lamenting is. We need God to fix this. I'd ask you this. I ask myself this. Where is your hope currently? Your biggest problem you have or your top three problems, where's your hope? I like to leave dead space. Sean would be yelling at you right now. But seriously, where's your hope? Hey, here's what I realized about prayer. It's never about technique with me. Sean is one of the most intense, God-fearing, praying men I've ever met. He fasts and does all these things that I know I'm supposed to do, but I just don't. I don't, not because I don't have the techniques, because I've called Sean and got his techniques. I don't feel a need to pray because I'll fix this myself. My six-year-old is acting up. I'll go read. I'll go ask someone. I'll fix him myself. My church has gone this way. I'll fix it myself. My family situation, I'll fix it myself. Anybody else like that? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll just be the guy that 
prayer only became a reality in my life when I got married. I got saved at 18, went to college here at Grand Canyon, got married shortly thereafter, and I started praying like a real prayer for the first time in my life. I had been reading the Bible, had been praying in essence, but hadn't been depending on God through prayer. And marriage just was just this weird reality to me that I can't do this. I've got this person that I love who speaks an entirely different language than me and needs me, but then doesn't need me for things. And I just can't figure this thing out. And I got on my knees and I prayed. My wife would say, she's like, ah, marriage wasn't that bad. I said, you're welcome, dear. (laughs) But when she had started having kids, that girl prayed. That girl prayed, and that girl prayed, and that girl prayed. And when she couldn't figure out nursing and all these things that you just have no idea what to do, she prayed. Now, you might look at that as a failure. God looks at that as that's where you should be, praying, because you can't fix this. The number one thing I deal with at my church, I, I lead students. We've got, I don't know, a certain amount of students, but I've got about 35 adults that kind of mentor the students in our ministry. And the number one thing I deal with is discouragement and despair and them wanting to quit. How many of you guys have ever raised a teenager? Yeah, we know. You had an easy one, Mom. Because it's hard. But it's a good spot to be because it gets you outside of your resources that have kept you going this whole time. And it gets you where only God can show up and save that 16-year-old. Or get that 16-year-old to break up with that. Or get that 17-year-old to figure out eating and healthy habits and cutting and all these issues. You realize, I can't do this. And God shows up for you. So I I know I'm not your pastor, but just a few kind of encouragement slash challengements. Young people in here. I see a lot of young people. College type. Take on the responsibility of another human being. I never prayed through college. Because it was just me. I could do me. Especially if you're healthy and you got a car. You can get around like you don't really need much. You can do that. That's not that hard. Even grades and academics is, is not that hard. Especially at Canyon. I went there. But you take on the responsibility of another person that you have no control over. You can't convince them to think a certain way. You can't change their heart to believe a certain You can't fix any of it. And you'll pray like all the moms I know that pray for their kids, their adult children who are not believers in Jesus. You will pray. You will depend on Jesus, maybe for the first time in your life. Parents in this room, I tell you to pray big, 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 unmanageable prayers. How much of your prayer life lines up exactly with our Mormon friends and our atheist, just good old American friends? I want them to graduate high school. Wasn't that hard, Peoria? It was a cakewalk. Get a college degree, Okay. Raise the bar a little. Get a good paying job. Okay, that's what everyone wants, regardless of their Jesus view. Bigger prayers than just the seen world here that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Pray big prayers for what they'll become and what they'll be and what they'll be about. And then lastly, the older folks, well, I'll let you define that however you want to define that. This might be an overstretch, but put pause Occasionally, on whatever news source you get your information from. However you pause stuff. If it's your computer, your podcast, pause. 
open up the Psalms and pray a prayer of lament for this country and for our people and for you yourself. Rather than spending hours filling your head with what they think the solution to this world is. All right, we all got homework for this week. Do that for me. I never prayed, I'm being totally honest, as a Grand Canyon student. Because life was just good and easy and smooth. I became a husband. I thought, I don't have this thing figured out. And I prayed. Let's go to our last point here. Last point is simply this. Lament is a primer for our prayer, praise towards God. What's a primer? Any of you guys do yard work? That's my favorite pastime because the engine gets loud and I get to drown out my boys and my wife needing stuff. I'm like, eh. A primer. I don't know what it does, but it primes. <laughs> my dad knows. Get something on the engine or the sparks that needs to be there. And one guy's shaking his head, so I'm on the right track. It primes the engine. That's what despair and lament does for the Christian. It primes us for better praise of God than we had prior to that. And we see that with David here. So let's read the last two verses. Verse 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Emotions, people. Feelings, people. Look at me. Truth's got to kick in at some point. You can't be like my 16-year-old students I deal with who camp out in feelings all the time. They've got to land on some truth. That's bigger than yourself. And that's where David lands. He's an emotional guy. But he lands right here on some truth. He says, but I will trust. I have trusted in your steadfast love. How many of you guys love chocolate chip cookies? How many of you guys love Cheetos? How many of you guys love your spouse? How many of you guys love my neighbor Reuben? Just me. How many of you guys love trucks? America is weird, and the English language is weird because I love Cheetos, I love my neighbor Reuben, I love my truck, and I love my wife. I'm saying the same word, but I don't know the difference between what I'm saying. I, I know in my heart, but we only have one word to encapsulate. I love Cheetos, and I love the woman who bore my children. That's weird. The Hebrews and the Greeks who had language before us had multiple options for this word love. And this word love, steadfast love, is the word covenant loyalty. David's not saying, I have trusted in God's love towards me, God's feelings of love towards me in the good times. I have trusted in his covenant loyalty, his goodness, his faithfulness, his promise-keeping ability. There's a worship song I play when I want to get... Just revved up for the day. And the words are promise maker, promise keeper. You finish what you begin. And it gets me going for the day because it sets me into his covenant love. God has made promises. God has kept promises. God will keep making promises and keep keeping his promises. And that's the love David rests in and that I rest in. I like that amen. That's what David's saying there. What promises, if you read the Old Testament, there's a series of promises. To Noah, he says, I will never do this to you again. And he gives a rainbow and says, I'll never flood you guys out again. Promise. And then he goes to Abraham. Abraham is the best promise of the Bible. Because Abraham's this, this hero of the faith. 
But the critical moment of the Old Testament, when the promise is made between God and Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep. As if to say, you're not needed, son. This promise rests on me. This isn't a a dual effort here. You're just the person I'm going to do this through. And then he goes to Moses and makes more promises. If you and your people obey me, I will bless you beyond blessing. And then he comes to David and says, your kingdom will never end. Promise. So David is in the cave, journaling. He's not thinking about God's feelings towards him. He's thinking about God's promises towards him that have been made and been kept and are being made and kept right there in his day. That's what he's trusting in the midst of the pain and the suffering of his life. And that's what we rest in. Not this willy-nilly, feelings-based, I love Cheetos and I love Jesus. It's Jesus made promises. Jesus came through on his promises. I rest in that. Feelings, people. And the next verse says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David also recalls salvation. Now, if you're a Bible person, reform guy, whatever, you have some understanding of the Bible, there's a good chance you've taken salvation and reduced it to just mean, at one point, Jesus forgave your sins, and now you've been saved. Salvation is far bigger than that. David's not saying, I rejoice in your salvation that you have forgiven me. His salvation here is you are rescuing me and you will rescue me. Even in my darkest hour, you are rescuing me. That's what he rests in. And that's what we rest in. His perfect promise-making love, his rescuing ability. And then finally, my favorite line, verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice David doesn't say, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with the world. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with Israel. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with my kingdom. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You ever think, like, God's going to have, like, an inside joke with you when you meet him one day? We get into the faith, and we get into the faith because Jesus loves us so much that he died on a cross. And we get into the faith, and a lot of Christianity gets so vague and kind of out there, we forget the personal aspect that God loves me. I look at each of my three boys a little differently. I have different symbols for each of them. And I'm an average dad at best. And God says he is a good father, a perfect father. How much more is that going to be true of our relationship? I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. question i wrote down what would would david have been able to write verse six if he had not endured all those painful chapters throughout his life maybe but i doubt it so much of god's love is proved through the pain and the trials and the suffering what would david's faith have looked like without the lament what would my faith look like without the seasons of lament and pain So I just want to end with a story about me and then two encouragements for you guys. What would my life have looked like without the lament? Good, I think. Looking back, I would have said, that's all I want. I don't want pain. So our story, we wanted kids. You get married, you want kids. That's kind of the next step. So we said, you want to get pregnant? Sure, I think so. Boom, pregnant. We start talking again at the coffee table. I think we want a second. Boom, pregnant. I think we need a third person around this. Boom, pregnant. 
each one better looking and cooler than the previous. <laughs> Elijah, Rome, and Jude. Amazing household. I think we want a fourth. Silence. Not only silence, but pregnancy and then miscarriage. Painful miscarriage. And if I just stopped right there, the Bible talks about trials perfecting us to be more like Jesus. And I saw that happen in my life because I was way more compassionate than I've ever been. And I was a better pastor and more gracious towards people. So I thought, okay, God, I, I see what you're doing. Let's, enough of that, please. Let's, let's try this again. Miscarriage. All right. And then just pretty, pretty much darkness. Okay, let's, one more time. <laughs> Miscarriage. So, we're batting 500, which people have worse, but I'm just trying to figure out what God's doing in all this. And like David, I'm saying, God, how long? Why? Why? I don't get this. I get the first one because it's changed me towards other people, and especially women who have gone through this. But why more? So you guys have heard these two phrases if you've been around church. God loves you. You're not alone. I would have heard those and intellectually known those before all this. Yet in the midst of all this, me and my wife are just struggling big time. And this, this person tells us, why don't you remember something? God loves you and you're not alone. Like, Wow, profound. How big of a book did you read to come up with that? I need something bigger for this dark, dark time. God loves you, you're not alone. And that week, I go to seminary, and we sit in the same spot each week at seminary. I sit next to this guy, and this guy leans over to me. Hey, man, I'm not weird, I promise. But God keeps bringing you and your wife to my mind every morning to pray for you guys. Just, God loves you. You're not alone. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, even in the darkness, especially in the darkness. God loves you, Redemption Peoria. Christian, God loves you. Non-Christian, have you experienced that love yet? How do you know someone loves you? I know my parents love you. Here's kind of the two gauges. What are they willing to give you and what are they willing to give up for you? I deal with teenage dating all the time. That's not real love because the guy is never willing to give up anything for that girl. It's lust. God is love. He is willing to give us eternity and a relationship with him and all the blessings we'd ever want. And he's willing to give up what? His life for me in my sin. He died on the cross for me. God loves you. And lament should land there. It's a primer getting you ready to blow up those little phrases that just seem trite and trivial before and they become more profound in the midst of your lament. And then finally, you are not alone. You guys do a good job of this from what I see corporately. You lament, you pray, you do the corporate stuff. But lament in your redemption communities. Lament together. Don't do this alone. As a church, we want to be able to sing this together. We will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with us, Redemption Peoria. And you only get there through verse 1. How long? Verse 2. How long? God loves you. You're not alone. Lament is his gift to you in the midst of this broken world. Let's pray.